Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy New Year from the DSR Network. We hope you had a safe and happy holiday season. We're excited about our plans for 2022, which will include more member content, exciting partnerships, and programming expansion. To celebrate what we hope to be a successful 2022, we are offering $2 off a monthly membership or $20 off an annual membership. Members receive access to bonus content, member-only briefings delivered on Wednesdays and Fridays, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. To become a member, which goes a long way to supporting our work, please visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code DSR2022 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code DSR2022 at checkout. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I am in New York City, where it is one million degrees below zero. And people fall to dust when they leave their homes. Fortunately for all of you, that's not the case everywhere. For example, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute is in California. And it's not a hundred million degrees below zero there, is it? No, it's so beautiful and blue skied and the fog is just burning up. Oh, stop. Stop. And Yeah, but you're going to have a forest fire any second now. That's (laughs) true enough. And that other voice you hear, of course, is Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law School, who's in Alexandria. How are you feeling, Rosa? Well, for a a COVID patient, I I feel pretty good, David. I'm in day four of isolation. Yeah, I don't know that we've ever had an actual COVID patient on the podcast before. Glad you oh, are. Rosa, dead. I'm so sorry. Well, you, don't don't be too sorry for me because I'm I have superpowers having been boosted. So I just feel a little crummy. But I'm playing it up as much as I can with my kids to try to get them to wait on me. But <laughs> you know. <laughs> do, do they? Well, they're no, not really. They both don't have COVID too, and they actually had worse symptoms than I do than I do, I think. <laughs> Were they all vaccinated also? Yeah, they hadn't been boosted yet, but they were both vaccinated. So going like wildfire. Have you avoided this, Corey? I have so far avoided this. I decamped out to California in order not to be a source of potential infection to my sweet sister, who is my housemate in Washington. But yeah, so far, so good. I think the problem is that you have to just stay away from other humans because they, it turns out that almost all of them have cooties. Yeah, they really do. Right now, everybody's got cooties. And uh, I'm prepared to 
as won't surprise David, return to the 19th century practice of us all wearing gloves when we're actually in human contact. It doesn't surprise me that you're prepared to to do that. I, I, I hope we don't have to return to the 14th century practice of carrying around little nosegays of flower flowers with us so that we don't have to smell the corpses in the street. Yeah. Well, that was, you know, my, disgusting, my, my, David. When I was a child, my parents were like, Oh, you want to play Ring Around the Rosie? Ring, ring, yeah. Rosie? ring Around Rosie. Yeah. Um, well, the good thing is since COVID takes away your sense of smell, that won't be an issue for us. Has it taken away yours? <laughs> I think it is partially. It's partially. And I'm I'm praying for it to come back because I really like food. <laughs> we hope you will feel better very soon and we hope you avoid it. Corey, I've I can't possibly get COVID because it's so cold here that I wouldn't dream of leaving, <laughs> leaving my home. And uh, my wife has this weird, like, onesie that's like for riding a snowmobile. <laughs> and it, it's like tested to 40 degrees below zero. Oh, I am so envious. Oh, yeah. Every time I see a baby in a stroller in one of those things, I think, why don't they make them for grown women? And they it sounds do. like they have. They do. It's called refrigerware. <laughs> and, 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 and Carla wore it and I took a picture of her and everybody said, oh, I want one. And she today got a, an email from the makers of refrigerware saying, you are now an unofficial <laughs> ambassador for refrigerware. <laughs> Wonderful. Congratulations to her for becoming an ambassador. Yeah, well, you know, and she didn't even have to deal with Ted Cruz <laughs> to get confirmed. In any event, none of this is what we're here to discuss today, although the weather and COVID and things are in the news, so why not? One of the things I wanted to talk about today and pick your brains about a little bit, and then later in the second part of the podcast, I'll be joined by our friend David Sanger, who is currently doing a New York Times podcast, even as we speak, is the situation in Ukraine, or more appropriate, but more properly, the situation across the Ukraine border in Russia, where there are troops massed, and where apparently today the Russians were doing live fire maneuvers, and a situation that seems serious enough that the National Security Advisor to the president, Jake Sullivan said that the threat of invasion is real today. So he's talked about this for a while, but he seems to have ratcheted up his concern somewhat. And where our deputy secretary of state, Wendy Sherman, who is a very experienced negotiator in dealing with very tough issues, is trying to negotiate the Russians out of doing this, although they seem to be making a whole heck of a lot of unreasonable requirements of her and of NATO. So it does seem like a precarious situation and the one where most of the foreign policy and national security brain power of the U.S. government is focused. And I wanted to know what you guys were thinking about where we are in all of this. And I'll start with you, Corey. I think, yes, the threat of Russian invasion is real. And has been for even more time than when acknowledged by the National Security Advisor. The massing of 100,000 troops in striking distance of Ukraine 
is a really dangerous provocation by Russia. And the their position in the negotiations that NATO should turn the clock back to 1997 and eject current members who were formerly Warsaw Pact subjugants of Russia, or even more onerously, subjugants of the Soviet Union. They have made demands that are so obviously unreasonable that it worries me that what they are doing is setting up in Putin's mind a rationale for the invasion of Ukraine because the West is unwilling to do anything to address their concerns. But I still think there's only about a 55% probability that the Russians will invade Ukraine. And I think the administration is handling this actually really well. They identified the Russian troop movements early. Think back to Bill Burns's trip to Moscow in what was it, late October, early November. They shared the intelligence with NATO allies and even beyond the alliance to give governments time to come to common positions. They've identified a set of economic sanctions that even if they might not deter Russian, the Russian invasion would drive up the cost to it substantially. And they have been unflinching in the face of outrageous Russian demands in saying that we're not going to close the door to NATO membership. We are not going to trade Ukraine's sovereignty to persuade the Russians not to scare us. And I think that's been great. The assessment that most pers- that I have found most persuasive is by the Critical Threats Project at AEI that's run by Fred Kagan, that judges that Putin is either doing this for internal purposes or hoping he can get pre- preventative concessions from the West, but that in the Critical Threat Project's judgment and the Institute for the Study of War, its sister organization, they actually think that the Russians, that time is playing to our advantage. And it looks to me like the administration is actually pretty shrewdly stringing out the conversations with Russia because sustaining upwards of 100,000 troops in those circumstances gets pretty expensive pretty fast. And I think that's the reason that the Russians are arguing, we need concessions now, we need progress now, because the cost is beginning to wear. Thoughtful analysis, totally agree with you, by the way, that the administration is handling this very well. And I would add to it, it seems to me they've learned a lot over the course of the past year. You know, they're all very experienced and have learned a lot over the course of the past 20 or 30 years. But in terms of if you compare how they're handling this to how they handled some of the initial initiatives of this administration in terms of very careful consultations with the allies, communicating that they were doing consultations with the allies, laying out clearly their position, communicating with the media clearly so they knew everything that was going on and taking tough principled positions. I'm very, very impressed. This seems to be ratcheting up their egg game. Well, 
We have one data point to that effect. They're not handling China's threats to Taiwan or Hong Kong nearly as adroitly. Well, we we can discuss that in a minute, if you like. I, I would say there's some evidence they're they're handling their the negotiation with Iran that way as well. But but let, we can talk about that in a bit. Rosa, what do you think? Well, the Russian de- deputy foreign minister says Russia is not going to invade Ukraine. They have no intention to invade Ukraine. So, of course, I believe him and I feel completely relaxed now about this because they always tell the truth. You are um, such a, a believing <laughs> little Mary Sunshine. I really like I, that. I am. No, I, I, I thought it was very sweet and kind of him to reassure everybody. I, I mean, I still would put the possibility of an actual Russian invasion lower than Corey. I mean, I don't know. God, who knows? None of this is exactly science, but I would probably tend to put it down at more like 25 percent rather than up above just above 50 percent. That being said, I, I share the assessment that both of you made that the Biden administration is, is doing as good a job as, as anybody can. You know, frankly, I think that even if they think the chances of, of an invasion for practical purposes are 5 percent, they still have to act like it's a very real possibility. You know, it's one of those classic low probability, high consequence events. And, and I think they're quite right to be acting as if this could happen and taking it really, really seriously and standing really, really firm. I also think that the Russians, you know, you can't expand NATO, you know, outrageous demands are. It could be what Corey says, right? It could be that they're setting up they're setting things up so that they can say, hey, well, they wouldn't they wouldn't make any concessions. But the other possibility is that they're being canny negotiators. They're throwing out some outrageous demands that they know will never be met in the hopes that then we will feel pressured and European allies and NATO altogether will feel pressured to give in on smaller things because clearly we're going to say no to the to the more outrageous demands. And I don't know. We'll see how this plays out. I, I continue to think that the costs of an actual invasion for Russia are very, very high financially, politically, et cetera, while they meanwhile have all kinds of other means at their disposal that they will continue to use from energy diplomacy to cyber tactics that they can they can use with much less threat of significant sanctions or other kinds of blowback. And they're probably more likely to continue to to do that if they possibly can. So I know I, I do. I, I think that we're doing as good a job as anybody could be doing right now of, of trying to kind of thread that needle of being tough enough to make it clear, no, we're not going to stand by idly if you do this, but at the same time, not just so obnoxious that we essentially force Putin's hand by making him feel humiliated and that there's no possible way to attain any sense of internal credibility if he doesn't clearly show that he's willing to defy us. I think the fact that the U.S. negotiating team has been willing to you know, make the right noises about being respectful and seriously, and that the Russians are reciprocally making noises to the effect of, yes, yes, we think the U.S. is taking us very seriously. That's actually all, all good and is a testament to some pretty skillful tactics on the Biden administration's part. Truly. You know, watching this whole thing, Corey, it, it makes me think that one of the most dangerous things in the world is the nostalgia of old men. And that I'll get to Putin's nostalgia and why it's dangerous in a minute. But, you know, you look at Bolsonaro and he sort of wishes it were the good old days in Brazil where the military was in charge and governments sort of stayed in place by the result of military power. And 
Modi seems to be, you know, sort of yearning for a kind of Hindu nationalist ideal that I don't know actually ever existed. And Xi Jinping, well, he seems to be as much in connection with some of the things that Mao did as Deng. And I can go on and on. The current president of the United States seems to believe in a bipartisanship that hasn't existed in the United States in a long time. But Putin, you know, Putin really seems to be mesmerized by the former Soviet Union and Russian spheres of influence. And we're really seeing that not just in Ukraine. And we've seen, of course, in Georgia, we saw it with Ukraine and Crimea, but but we've also seen it recently with 20,000 Russian paratroopers dropping into Kazakhstan, although now the reports are that they're leaving there or they're sort of slow acquisition by flirtation of Belarus, where you happen to have a leader in, 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 in Lukashenko who kind of has the same nostalgia. So, you know, you know, they're all going through this. And they're just fighting for a time, it seems, that doesn't exist anymore. I, I was having a Twitter exchange with somebody on this the other day. And I said, you know, why can't these old men just sort of zero in on, you know, you know, favorite bands from yesteryear like most people? I went to Google and I Googled, what was the number one song in the world or the number one song on the day that, that the Soviet Union fell in 1991? And the number one song in the UK, was Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me by Elton John and George Michael. That's actually a brilliant mile marker, David. It really, it really is. And it remains to be one to this day. So what do you, what do you think will cure Putin of this other than his ultimate demise? I don't think anything will cure him of this other than his ultimate demise for two reasons. One is that this is the fourth or fifth example now of just how threatened Putin feels by people demanding rights and representative government. And our faith may be faltering that our values are universal, but Vladimir Putin's faith that Western values are universal rides high. And if it can get traction in a place like Ukraine or Kazakhstan, then why could it not get traction in the more European confines of Mother Russia? So I think we now see a pattern of behavior that he understands he's standing on thin ice and will be as repressive as necessary in order to sustain his hold on Russia and forestall the eventual reckoning that Russians will demand of their government. And I think the second thing is, when you have governed the way Vladimir Putin and other authoritarians have governed, there is no safe way to give up power. And so, you know, you get carried out by your boots because you can't be safe in your own country under a successor authoritarian. And thanks to international moves, you can't be safe in the way that, you know, Papa Doc Duvalier was leaving Haiti and going to live out his days in France or the way that Ferdinand Marcos got to live out his days in Hawaii. 
because most countries are no longer willing to give safe harbor to the despicable in order to get them out of power. Yeah. Someday we'll do an episode on the likely political fortunes of the Marcos family, which seem to be recovering now with the son Bong Bong in the Philippines. I mainly want to discuss it because his name is Bong Bong. Rosa, given that this seems to be something that Putin is not likely to get over, it would seem to me that the central issue in, in, in dealing with Russia is containing those impulses or sending messages to him that he needs to contain those impulses, which is to say that the goals for NATO need to be exactly the opposite of what Putin wants them to be. Now, maybe that's the reason Putin wants to change them, but do you not assume that for the next foreseeable future, NATO's main job is still going to be to contain Russian ambitions? That's true. I was actually thinking of it in in sort of terms of individual personality. I was thinking of dealing with an abusive person, right? I mean, and of course, international relations is 80 gazillion times more complicated. But, you know, fundamentally, especially when so much power is centralized in a single person, Putin in the case of Russia, it's, it's not dissimilar. I mean, we, the dilemma that we face, the diplomacy dilemma, is that if we make him feel threatened, and particularly if we make him feel diminished or humiliated or disrespected, the threat level will go up. So we have some incentive to be nice to him and do a little bit of ego stroking. But if we do too much ego stroking, uh, the threat also goes up because then he feels that there's no real, uh, there's no deterrence anymore. And calibrating that kind of just right amount of respect with stern warning to maintain our credibility while letting him save face. So because he, what he cares most about, right, is retaining his power internally. You know, he cares about the external expansion, external influence primarily because it is vital to maintaining his external, his internal power. And as Corey says, you know, he doesn't exactly have a lot of gentle exit options where he just goes into happy retirement and has the Vladimir Putin library or whatever, from which, you know, um, he's occasionally consulted as an elder statesman. That's not an option. He's been there very, for a very long time. You know, he deals with his internal enemies by bribing them, locking them up or killing them if necessary. And his internal power is, is enhanced if he can show Russians that he is tough internationally. So that, that's the, the incredibly delicate tightrope that we are walking and are going to have to continue to walk. And NATO is going to have to continue to walk. You know, is really carefully calibrating. If we do too much muscle flexing about NATO, we're going to continue to expand. We don't care what you say. We could increase the threat if we act like, okay, fine, never mind. NATO won't expand. expand. You're absolutely right, Vladimir. We also increase the threat. So, it's, so I think it's just an extraordinarily difficult situation. The only, going back to something Corey said earlier on the U.S. is doing a, a less good job calibrating that when it comes to China and Taiwan, I think this is the fate of being still the major power globally, is that everybody's going to take us try to down. Everybody is going to try to mess with us at once. Everybody's going to try to take us down at once. And that, historically speaking, is how great powers eventually fall because, you know, you've got the sort of Lilliputian threat. Everybody goes after you at the same time and your attention is divided. It becomes extraordinarily difficult to get it right in multiple places simultaneously. 
because the, you know, we only have one president, we only have one national security advisor, we have a big State Department, Defense Department. But at the end of the day, the key decision makers have only so much mental bandwidth. And it's, it, I think it's just that is a real and serious threat that we face right now, globally speaking, is that, of course, it's not an accident that Russia, China, Iran are all muscle flexing themselves simultaneously. Each of them knows perfectly well that the odds that we're going to be able to get it right with all of them simultaneously are low. And there are lots of opportunities for them to think, hmm, maybe we're going to be the ones to successfully exploit the U.S.'s inattention. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think someday we should go and sit and talk about those cases side by side, because I really think the issue in each of them is differs in terms of the credibility of our deterrent. Because I, I think the United States and NATO very likely would act to implement Article 5 of the NATO Treaty if Russia went into a NATO member. I don't think the United States would act to get into a large protracted, protracted conflict with China to defend Taiwan. But that's the foundation of our policy. And we keep saying it. And I don't think the Chinese believe us. And certainly, we don't have any leverage of that sort with regard to Hong Kong. I think in, in the case of Iran, they may or may not think that we or one of our governments might intervene, but they sure as hell believe that the Israelis would. And so I think that colors the diplomatic conversation. We will come back to this. We've gone through our first half hour here, and this is the time in, uh, in our podcast where we take a break so that those of you who are just visiting, who are not members, can reconsider that and decide that you want to become members. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, and become a member so you can get the rest of the podcast. In this case, our conversation with David Sanger about these issues and some of the stories the Times has broken recently on them. But in the meantime, thanks for joining. Rosa, get better soon. And Corey, stay healthy. And we'll see you all again next week. And for those of you who are staying with us, we'll be back in one moment. <laughs> 